continue our study through the book of Joshua. And in this particular section, as we look at the focus uh, in this section on the Gibeonites and what God is doing through Joshua and the people of Israel. So Joshua chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, please give your attention to the Word of God. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king, as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors." So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Horam, king of Hebron, to Param, king of Jamuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jamuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies, and encamped against Gibeon, and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly, and save us, and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel... While they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, as far as Azekah, and they died. There are more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still. And the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we give our attention to this passage this morning, help us to understand the story, and in doing so, may you help us grow in our understanding of you, the great and awesome God who fights for Israel. Lord, may you open our understanding. And shape our hearts to love you and to live before you more and more as we should. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our great Redeemer. 
Amen. Well, the first thing we need to note as we give our attention to chapter 10 is that chapter 10 is part of a larger section beginning in chapter 9. We looked two weeks ago in chapter 9 and uh, a rather interesting passage, and we tried to understand some of the dynamics of what was happening through that passage, but we saw the failure of Joshua and the leaders of Israel to pray and seek wisdom from God. And because of that, they entered into a peace agreement with the people from Gibeon and a few surrounding cities. And we saw that this created a, a problem. They had competing obligations. God had instructed the people of Israel to destroy all the nations in Canaan. But they had made a covenant with the people of Gibeon and the surrounding cities. And so we saw how they navigated that, those competing obligations. And at the end of the story, we see that the people of Gibeon survived. They were not destroyed. They were welcomed into the people of Israel, not just as we might say, offshoots or second-rate people. They were servants, but they were welcomed into the life of Israel. They were welcomed in and experienced the blessings of Israel. But as we get to the chapter of 9, we have some resolution, but we still have some lingering questions. The, the lingering question at the top of my mind, and, and I think of, of readers in general, is what does God think about the Gibeonites being spared. See, as we read through chapter 9, we don't quite know. We see what the Gibeonites do and say. We see what Joshua says. We see what the leaders say. We see how that chapter is drawn to a conclusion. Because of Joshua, the Gibeonites are spared from destruction. But we still have the question, what does God think? And two weeks ago, we tried to bring some resolution by looking at some... um, some places in Scripture that gives us some hints. But particularly in chapter 10, we have some direction in how to answer this question. We'll see God protects the Gibeonites. And we'll see that God uses this as God leads the people of Israel in their conquest of southern Canaan. But this is not the only link. The story of the Gibeonites is not the only link between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Another key feature here is the opposition of the Canaanites. And so as we look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10, this brings me to my first point, the opposition of the Canaanites, which I'm talking here, I'm categorizing this as the nations raging. The first few verses of chapter 10 look back to the introduction to chapter 9. So look at chapter 9 verse 1 with me. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. It's kind of an introductory comment. And then we hear the story of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are distinct from all those other people because the Gibeonites sought peace with the people of Israel. Verses 1 through 2 of chapter 9 are kind of a bland recounting. Big overview, not much detail. But as we get into chapter 10, we see some added details. As we read there, we saw the name of the kings, and particularly the name of the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek. 
And we hear, we see some details. He heard some particular details of what happened at Ai and that Ai was devoted to destruction. And he heard of the details of Jericho as well. In verse 2, we read his response, beginning of verse 2, he feared greatly. Here is his response. He heard that um, Jericho had been devoted to destruction. He had heard that Ai had been devoted to destruction. And he sees that he's in some serious danger. So Adonai Zedek, the the king of Jerusalem, is, is kind of the one who who gets the coalition together. He's the city closest to the Gibeonite cities. And so he fears the press of the threat the most. Gibeon is about eight miles north of Jerusalem. And the king is, as it were, almost looking at Gibeon. Well, he didn't quite see it, but he's kind of looking north and he's thinking, I'm in trouble. We need to do something about this threat. And in chapter 2, we see some details about Adonai Zedek's perspective. He greatly fears. Why? Because, firstly, Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities. So although Gibeon, the city of Gibeon, did not have a king, its strength, its prominence, its geographic location, its strategic location, um, and its its prominence in the neighboring cities was such that it was like a royal city. It was a center of power, a center of strength, not just political power, but military power as well. It was larger than Ai. And so, implication, its fortifications are stronger than Ai's. It's harder to take. Um, It's more significant. It's more strategic in the defense of the southern region of Canaan. So Gibeon, as a city, provided security to the cities further south. Where it was geographically on the plateau, where it was where um, roads or highways would convene, its place of defense was significant for the defense of the southern cities further down into Canaan. So Adonai Zedek understands the strategic loss of Gibeon. He feels seriously threatened. Not only is there a strategic issue here, not only is there a prominence issue, but also the men of Gibeon are warriors. They're good fighters. So Adonai Zodek's thinking, not only have we lost a strategic position, but those men who would have joined forces with us to fight against Israel are going to be against us now, with Israel. So all of these things together has caused Adonai Zodek to be in great fear. So he sends messages. Um, Verse 4, he sends to the kings and he says, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon. If they're going to defeat Israel, they need to defeat Gibeon first. If they can't defeat Gibeon, then they're probably not going to be able to defeat Israel. So this is pressing on multiple levels, immediate strategic defense and the long-term goal of being able to overcome the people of Israel. But this phrase, feared greatly, also orients us to understand the spiritual realities 
of this section of Scripture. You see, Adonai Zedek is not just making war against Gibeon. Ultimately, he's making war against Yahweh. And that's drawn out here as we look at this phrase, greatly feared. It's contrasted with the same phrase in chapter 9. So look at chapter 9 and verse 24. The Gibeonites are being questioned by Joshua. And Joshua is saying, why did you deceive us? Justify us, justify to me your actions here. Explain it to me. And so the Gibeonites respond in verse 24. Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God, had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. You see, Adonai Zedek and the Gibeonites both feared greatly. But there's a big difference to what this reflects of the spiritual reality of the Gibeonites and Adonai Zedek and the coalition. The Gibeonites feared greatly. Why? Because they were certain that the words of Yahweh would come true. And so they begged for peace. The only hope they had, as we talked about two weeks ago, was for them, from their perspective, to trick the people of Israel to make a peace treaty with them so that they would have protection. They were looking to Joshua, whose name means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. They were looking to Joshua to save them, to bring them peace. In contrast, what happens with Adonai Zedek? He fears greatly. What's he fear? He fears that he would lose his kingdom, his power, his life. And so he goes against Gibeon. And in going against Gibeon, he's going against Israel and Joshua. And in going against Joshua and Israel, he is going against Yahweh. See, from Adonai Zedek's perspective, there's no... There's no rationale, there's no reasonableness, there's, there's no benefit for seeking peace with the people of Israel. From his perspective, the only good outcome would be, to, or the only good outcome to avoid destruction is to defeat Israel and Joshua and the Gibeonites in war. But we've learned, as we've looked at Joshua, uh, of Jericho and of Ai, that the destruction of these cities is not merely about war. The destruction of these cities is God's divine judgment against a wicked people. The Gibeonites understood that. They went with humble hearts seeking peace. Adonai Zedek, with great pride, with great arrogance, he thinks he can go against Yahweh and he's a chance of winning. That's his only hope. His hope is in himself and his strength and the arm of man. And the Gibeonites' only hope was in the people of Yahweh. So we see here, as we look at Adonai Zedek and his perspective on Israel and the cities of Gibeon, we see here a great example, a representation of the folly and deceitfulness of sin and rebellion against God. Adonai Zedek is a poster child 
for the folly of rebellion against Yahweh. You see, when we're caught in sin, we're blinded to the spiritual realities of our situation. We can't see it. We think our perspective of reality is the right perspective. And we're caught up in our sin. We think sin is the best way to live. We fail to see the blessing that comes through submission. We think submitting our desires to God is the worst thing that we could do. And so we fight against God pursuing our sinful desires. Pursuing sinful desires is as foolish as Adonai Zedek is foolish in thinking he can win against Gibeon and against Israel. And so here we have a great picture that strengthens us in our fight against sin. We need to to have pictures like this in our hearts and minds to help us fight temptation, to help us see the goodness and the blessing of submission to God. And these stories in the Scripture are stories that illustrate these spiritual realities. Because that's what's happening in the passage. As we look at this situation, as we look at Adonai Zedek raging against Yahweh in his sin and rebellion, I'm reminded of some words from Psalm chapter 2. Please turn to Psalm chapter 2. Which is the reason I gave the heading to the section that I did. Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, is a psalm that is speaking of God's purposes, God's glorious ultimate purposes through the Messiah, His Son. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now this psalm, I think, is probably a psalm of David. And it's a psalm that's looking forward to the Messiah. But the truths of this psalm are reflected in the situation we're looking at here, even before the life of King David. What do we see? We can, we can just map these words on. Here's Adonai Zedek, raging against Yahweh, thinking he can have victory, thinking that his strength is enough to overcome the strength of God. But it's absolutely not the case. In fact, if you look at verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will seek, speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this psalm gives us our perspective as we look forward, but, but the Uh, The strength and the power of this psalm can be filled as we think about what we're reading in Joshua chapter 10. What will this look like? What what is the the power of Yahweh against the nations who rage like? What might it look like in the future? Well, we can go back to Joshua 10 and see what it is. What is it like when Yahweh, the powerful God, laughs in derision at the rage of the nations? He throws some hail. Destroys that. Just, just a bit of just a few stones from, from his perspective, right? And here are the nations raging with clenched fits. We're going to take Gibeon. We're going to destroy them 
in their arrogance and self-sufficiency and rebellion against the Creator. So as I read Joshua 10, Psalm 2 is just resonating in my mind and heart as we think about the spiritual realities that we're considering here in Joshua 10. So let's turn back to Joshua 10. So we move on from verses 1 through 5, seeing the rage of the nations, to in the section verses 6 through 11, seeing Yahweh who fights. He is the glorious warrior who destroys. He is the glorious warrior who will bring victory. So let's look at verse 6, beginning of this section. In response to the nations gathering together, they've, they've got their armies together. They've marched up. They're getting ready to siege Gibeon. They haven't made war yet, but they're encamped and they're making ready to war. We might say no, no spears have been thrown, no swords have clashed yet, but they're readying in battle encampment to destroy Gibeon. Well, the, the text contrasts the way the Gibeonites seek for help with the way that Adonai Zedek seeks for help. Again, let me read verse 4. He writes to the, to the kings, and Adonai Zedek says, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Now read verse 6. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. There's a great contrast here. <laughs> the Gibeonites seek for help, and they're seeking for help from the people that they are certain Yahweh will use to destroy Canaan. The reason they sought the peace treaty in the first place is they're certain of Yahweh's power to destroy. And so they send message to Israel like, now's the time, we need your help, come up and help us. We're confident, I'm, I'm thinking of words they used back in chapter 9, we're certain that with your help and the help of Yahweh, we might be saved. And there's urgency here. Come up to us quickly and save us. I wonder what that was like. Maybe... Um, the, the armies have gathered from those um, highland southern kingdoms. They've, they've marched up to Gibeon, and the, whoever's on watch duty on the walls of Gibeon say, hey, shut the gates. We're in trouble. The armies have amassed. Send a messenger to Joshua immediately. So they shut the front gates. Messenger runs out the back gate, and he runs down to Gilgal with this message to Joshua. Come and help us quickly. Verse 7. So Joshua responds with urgency. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. They respond immediately. They march all through the night, we learn in, in, a, in a few verses. If we go down to verse 9. So Joshua came upon them suddenly. That is, the, the army arrayed against Gibeon, having marched up all night from Gilgal. So here we get the sense of urgency. Look, they marched all night, probably took them the whole night from when they got the message. Um, and they marched through the night 
from the plains near Jericho, and they surprise them. So we have a map here. I don't know if you have this map up. So, so we have a map here. Gives you an idea of their march from Gilgal, probably, we're not sure exactly where it is, but somewhere on the plains near Jericho. 15 to 20 miles march as the kind of crow flies. 3,000 feet, they've got to climb. So this is a pretty good pace they make to march through the night, to get up into the hills, make the journey to be at Gibeon. So we see the strategy of, of Joshua. He responds immediately. We see him just reflexively, let's go, man, gather. We're going up. They march up with urgency, surprise the enemy, it would seem, at sunrise. They're shocked, and they're ready to fight. Um, so we, we see the strategy, um, the responsiveness of Joshua to protect the people of Gibeon. Um, but we see something particular in verse 8, as they're going up, as they're departing, the Lord says to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. I have given them into your hand. That's the emphasis, what Yahweh is doing. And so as you look at verse 10, we see something significant. The focus is on not Joshua and his strategy, Not the Israelites and their might or their power or their endurance to march all through the night and then surprise the enemy and start fighting, but the focus is on Yahweh. He is the actor in verses 10 and 11. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Ezekiah. And Makedah. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them. Yahweh throws them into panic. He strikes them. He chases them. He's the one who strikes them. It said this a second time. He is the one who throws down large hailstones. Yahweh. He is the warrior. He is the destroyer. He is the one of power. He is the one who should be seen as the one who brings victory. Yahweh is the mighty warrior who fights, not just fights for Israel, but fights to defend the Gibeonites. What does God think about the treaty that the people of Israel made with Gibeon? Here's what he thinks. I'll protect you like I protect my people Israel. I will defend you with my power. You will have life, and you will escape destruction. Adonai Zedek and all the kings and the army are destroyed. But the people of Gibeon, they are delivered. They are delivered, firstly, we learn in chapter 9, from Joshua and the people of Israel. And now in chapter 10, we see they are delivered from the wicked people of Canaan. So what does, what does Yahweh think? Aha. Uh-huh. He's accepted them. He's brought them into his covenant relationship. They are the, the, the people of Gibeon now experience all the blessings that Israel experiences. Yahweh fights for the Gibeonites. What an amazing thing we see. 
So I want, can you go to the next map, um, Cotton? So, so we see what happens here. Yahweh chases them. Go, look at verse 10. He throws them into a panic. Now, did Joshua and the people of Israel surprise them? Yes. They were active. But why were they thrown into a panic? Because of Yahweh. Now, it could have been Joshua surprises them, and they fight, and they don't run. But the reason they're thrown into a panic is ultimately because of Yahweh. So they're thrown into a panic, and they start running from their military encampment before Gibeon. Where do they run? They, they run to Beth Haran. They go down the ascent of Beth Haran, and they keep running, fleeing to Ezekiah, and further even more. So from Gibeon through Beth Haran down to Ezekiah is about 25 miles. Look at verse 11. As they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large hailstones. So the hailstones don't come right at the beginning of the battle. They're running from Gibeon, and it's not until they get to the descent at Beth Haran that God starts throwing hailstones. And the hailstones follow the army for 20 miles. They're running, and their military personnel keep dying from the hailstones. They keep running, and, and, and the men are seeing their, their, their military slowly decreasing. Further they run as the hailstones rain down on them. Well, the hailstones are a miracle, but it's interesting. None of the people of Israel get hit by hailstones. This is one very selective and powerful hailstorm. You know, I wonder, was there a storm? Was this like storm clouds and hailstones? Was this just hailstones out of blue sky? We don't know. We might suppose God used the weather elements to have a very intense storm cloud that follow them. That, that would be a reasonable expectation. But maybe not. All we know is that hailstones followed the kings of the south and their armies, and none of the people of Israel were destroyed. So we see in the summary statement from this section that the, the attribution is that Yahweh is the one who brings victory. At the end of verse 11, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So if you're handing out military awards from this battle, who killed the most? Who was the most amazing warrior from this battle? Yahweh. He was the one. He killed the majority. He destroyed the majority. He is the great warrior. He is the one to be seen as the one who brings victory. We also see this emphasized in the second summary statement in this section in verse 15. Sorry, end of verse 14. There'd be no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So here we see Yahweh pictured as the mighty warrior. Yahweh, the mighty warrior for the people of Israel. 
I want to pause here in the story of Joshua to make some connections, brief connections, but hopefully to make some connections throughout the Bible that will help put you some pieces together and help maybe see some of the implications of this passage, and you might go down some rabbit trails with this, and I hope you do, but I just want to draw some connections here. This theme of Yahweh, of God being a mighty warrior, we see throughout Scripture. Go to Psalm 24. There are numerous um, psalms that we see that pick up on this theme. We'll just go to two for the moment. Psalm 24 and verse 8. Because of time, I won't read the psalm, but we'll just land in Psalm 24, 8. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Now, the word warrior isn't here, but, but what's being talked about? Yahweh is the great and glorious and mighty warrior, strong in battle. No one can defeat him. He is marvelous. He is powerful. He is glorious in his warrior might. Go to Psalm 110. which we might see as, as kind of a key connecting point to what we're looking at here in the Old Testament, to what we see in the New Testament with Christ, and then in the revelation of His glorious power at the end of time. Psalm 110, I will read this psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, this, this is military language. Make your enemies your footstool. Bring them into subjection, subjugation, with power and authority. Put them in their place. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook of the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So as you read this, the imagery that's being used here in Psalm 110 to anticipate this future son of David who will sit on a throne, who will be priest and glorious king together, an eternal priest and a glorious reigning king. And as you read these words, what we read in Joshua 10 helps fill the significance of these words, heighten our anticipation of what it might be like in the future. What's it like when the king, with his mighty scepter, shatters kings and executes judgment amongst the nations? Joshua 10 is a picture of what this looks like. And you see the mighty power of God to destroy kingdoms. Why do the nations rage? They are but a drop in the bucket. They are but mere grains of sand in light of the power and the glory of God. Well, Psalm 110 is looking forward to the great king, the son of David, 
who will rule in power and glory, and that is to Jesus, the true Joshua, the one who Joshua, as a person, as a figure, kind of anticipates. Jesus, the true Joshua, who will defeat Satan. We learn in the Gospel of John that Jesus links the glory, the, the hour is glorification with the initial definitive judgment of Satan. John 12, 31 says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So even this language of anticipating Jesus' victory and his engagement with Satan is in terms of this warrior king idea. Revelation, I'm going to jump from John now to Revelation 12. I believe what Jesus says in John 12, 31 anticipates what we see in Revelation 12. I'm just going to read a few verses. Revelation 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, are con- and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. We see here this picture in heaven, and there's a war, a mighty war. A war which has a predictable outcome. And it's a war because Christ, the mighty warrior, comes in power and glory and definitively defeats Satan. The mighty warrior, Yahweh the mighty warrior that we see in Joshua 10, is helping us learn something about Jesus, the mighty warrior, and the war that he will fight with a definite, definitive end, Satan will be destroyed. Yahweh's glorious fight against the kings of the Amorites, you see, his power, his glory, is a picture of what we can anticipate in the future of ultimate destruction and is a picture of something of present spiritual reality. We are situated now between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. We are situated between Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father in power and glory, Satan, Satan's defeat is definitive, but Satan is not yet utterly destroyed and locked away. We're living between these two periods, these two instances. 
And I think just two verses, uh, or a few verses that uh, I, I want you to reflect on as we think about our present spiritual situation in light of these realities. Colossians 1.13, we read, He, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has, as it were, reached into enemy territory. Because of His power, He's reached into enemy territory and rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness. He's rescued us out from being under the authority and the power of Satan. And He's delivered us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So Jesus says, we see in Matthew 16, 18, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell are not strong enough to thwart God's delivering presence and power in reaching into the kingdom of darkness and pulling out and rescuing people and delivering them into the kingdom of his beloved son. We presently experience the blessing like the Gibeonites experienced, of Yahweh's delivering power. Where we can identify with the Gibeonites. It was very physical for them. They're in a city. They saw warriors against them. They saw the deliverance, as it were, before their very eyes. Our experience is no less real. But we can't see it with physical eyes. And God has given us these true and real stories that happened in time and space in physical reality to help us conceive of the spiritual realities that we presently exist in. Joshua 10 helps strengthen and mature our understanding of what it is to trust in Christ as our delivering Savior. And since we are now in the kingdom of Jesus, since we have been linked to Him in this battle and fight, we read in Ephesians 6 something of how we function. We function as warriors. So we read in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't fight battles like Gibeon fights. We don't draw swords and lop people's heads off. We don't see people destroyed by big hailstones falling all around us. But those facts are no less real than what we find ourselves in right now. But we can't see that reality with our physical eyes. So we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. This is kind of like the people of Israel. And when the Gibeonites join them into fight, they they take up the armor, they take up the swords, they chase down the Amorites. They, They are involved in the battle. But whose victory is it? Yahweh's victory. If it were not for Him... The Amorites would not have been destroyed, and the Gibeonites would have been dead ducks. They fought, but they fought in the power 
of God, their warrior. So Joshua 10 here, a vivid physical picture for spiritual realities. I just want to pause and make one more point before we kind of get back in Joshua 10. As I was studying this passage and thinking about God the warrior defending and rescuing the Gibeonites, I also thought about the reality that God is the warrior who just doesn't defend, but he destroys. There's a sobering verse in James 4. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This word oppose has the idea of an army set in battle array against. If you humble your heart and seek the peace that comes from Yahweh, he will deliver you. If you fill your heart with the pride like Adonai Zedek, God will set himself against you and destroy you. That is the destruction of pride. Okay, let's go back to Joshua 10. We're picking up here. And I want to make one more comment about this section we're in, Joshua 10, 6 through 11. And thinking about the way Yahweh fights, and there's another spiritual principle I want to draw from here as I reflected on it. How does God destroy Jericho? March around seven days, they shout. Is that ever repeated? No. How does God destroy Ai? Well, there's some strategy there. Joshua holds up his javelin. That doesn't seem to be repeated. How does God bring deliverance to Gibeon? In a totally different way. God is faithful to deliver, but he does it a different way, it seems, every time. Every time it's a different way. I've been reflecting on this as I've been studying through Joshua. It's the same God fulfilling the same promise, I will deliver them into your hand, different way, every time. We might say, God is faithful, but not predictable in the particulars. He's faithful to fulfill his promises, but he doesn't usually do it the same way every time. I think that's a significant lesson for us this morning. Somebody's phone. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure whether it was the PA system or somebody's phone. Okay. Um, the way he fulfills his promises is varied. And I think we have a tendency to place our confidence in events. God did it this way this time. Maybe he'll do the same thing next time. And usually he doesn't. Why does he do that? Why is God frustratingly unpredictable in that way? Because he wants to train us not to look to events or circumstances or people, but to be forever trusting in him. Trusting that he will deliver, he will be faithful, he will fulfill his promises. He's absolutely going to do that. He's going to do it his way and not our way. That he might get all the glory. And we might not be presumptuous or look to ourselves, or look to circumstances, or look to our effort, or look to tradition, but look to Him alone. Well, the fact that Yahweh is the divine warrior does not make human effort meaningless, but actually it's the basis for Joshua's effort. We see in Joshua 10 and verse 12, 
Now, when you read verse 12, at this time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. Here, this is not a sequential act. We, we, we saw an overview, verses uh, 6 through 11, and now there's some detail that goes back into this overview. Sometime in this process of 6 through 11, Joshua prays. He prays knowing that God has already given assurance. God assured them, I will deliver them. Joshua prays on the basis of that assurance. Now, we don't have a, t- we don't have a time. When exactly did Joshua pray? But as we look at the story here, we have a picture of location. So in verse 12, um, we see the perspective of Joshua as he prays. The sun over Gibeon, the moon over the valley of Ajalon. Can I have that next map, please, Coden? I think it's next. Next one. Sorry. There's another map. Okay. So, Joshua, Joshua prays. You can see that's the, the middle red dot. Can you go back to it? Yeah. Okay, Joshua prays. So, to... Um, to the east, he sees the sun rising, kind of as he's looking towards Gibeon. To the west, he sees the moon as over the valley of Ajalon, of Ajalon. So we know kind of the geographical situation that Joshua is in as he prays this bold, astounding prayer. What's the situation here? They've surprised sunrise. They're in panic mode because Yahweh has put them into panic. The army is running as fast as they can from Gibeon down to the descent of Beth Haran. And the picture here is that Joshua, with the army, is seeing the enemy escape. And he prays. At this just general location, he prays, Oh Lord, do something amazing so that we may bring utter destruction to the enemy. Now in this section, in verses uh, 12 and 13, he prays that something would happen to time, would seem, or sunlight at least. But as we saw previously, we know when the hailstones begin. When do the hailstones begin? As the army's descending down the ascent of Beth Haran. So the hail comes, it would seem, after Joshua prays. Joshua prays, God answers his prayer, and some. Not only does God answer his prayer to extend the, as it were, whatever is happening there with sunlight, so that the people of Israel could thoroughly destroy and chase down the Amorites. But God sends hail as well. Joshua prays, trusting the promises of God to deliver. He prays for something specific. God answers in an amazing way above and beyond. He throws down hailstones. And he does something to sunlight. Or the day in some way. So the first thing I see, just Joshua, as a prophet of Yahweh, just praying an utterly audacious prayer. And God answering above and beyond that audacious prayer. Now, I think we should not look to Joshua as the example of this kind of prayer. But we look to him as the example of audacious prayers based on the promises of God. Secondly, what exactly are the cosmological details at work here? We know the earth is you know, spinning around the sun. The moon is doing its thing around the earth. What happened as far as all that? 
Um, we have some questions. There are some complexities in the text. At the very least, we see this, and it would seem that Yahweh profoundly upset the normal functioning of nature. So that this day was a unique day in all of history. Whatever God did here is unique. Now, people will argue, well, you know, we, this can't be possible because, you know, the, you can't like stop the spin of the earth and the sun and I don't know. I don't know how God did it. I don't think we need to know how God did it. But He did indeed deliver the enemies into the hands of the people of Israel. In conclusion, I want to look at verse 15. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Simple statement, right? Look at the word before Israel. All Israel. Not a one of the warriors of Joshua died. God fulfilled his promise. They returned, all of them, to the man, to Gilgal, after this great battle. Now, were the warriors skillful warriors? Yes. Were the men of valor the seal teams of Israel? Yes. But the reason none of them died is not fundamentally because of their skill. It's fundamentally because of Yahweh, the Deliverer. So as we're reflecting, the the flesh and bones war that we're looking at, the in time and space fight that we're looking at here in Joshua 10 is a picture for us to, to heighten our comprehension, our understanding of the present war that we're fighting in. Not of physical reality, but of spiritual reality. The mighty warrior Jesus, whose name in Hebrew is Joshua, has definitively defeated Satan. And we are clothed with with his armor, with his life. And in faith, in dependence upon his life and character, we are to fight an unseen but real enemy. I want to close reading from Ephesians chapter 1 as we consider the reality of God's power at work in this world, the reality of our present existence. Like the people of Israel, it's not our strategy, it's not our brain power, it's not whether you read the Bible every day that gives you spiritual victory. Though we are to engage in all of our faculties and we are to give ourselves in worship and to the meditation of Scripture. But the ultimate reason of our victory, the reason we do not need to be intimidated by the real and significant power of Satan is because Jesus is our warrior in the place of authority and in the place of power. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15, we'll close our message with this passage. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us 
who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray.